This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I can't believe it. I'm at Monticello. We're delighted to have you here, Martin. Welcome. Yes. And I'm with Susan Stein, and you just told me your title, and I'm going to have to ask you to repeat it. It is Richard Gilder, Senior Curator and Vice President for Museum Programs. Wow. <laughs> and that actually fits on a business card? It does. And it doesn't really... It, it describes a little bit of what I do. And yeah. <laughs> I, I work with collections, restoration, and interpretation issues, and all kinds of things here. And I've had the pleasure at, of working at Monticello for a long time. Wow. You know, uh, we talked, I think, was it a few years ago? Yes. And I, it's been my dream to come here, actually, for over 30 years. And so I'm just so glad to be here. It was such a wonderful tour. Well, great. Well, there is just so much to see. And it's a little drizzly today, but yeah. not enough to impede your enjoyment. I hope that you will have time to take the garden tour, the slavery at Monticello tour, to see the film, explore the four exhibitions in our new um, visitor center. There's a lot to learn here. Yes. Now we're here just, uh, it's the 1st of July, so we're just a couple of days away from July 4th. What usually goes on for celebrations here? Well, July 4th, as you can imagine, is our event because of Jefferson's association with the Declaration of Independence. So this will be, I believe, the 50th or 51st anniversary of the first naturalization ceremony at Monticello. Oh, wow. On on July 4th at 9 a.m., the federal court will be in session here, and, and the court will uh, naturalize about 80 citizens. Really? And it is fantastic. It takes place on the west front of Monticello, and before the actual the actual naturalization ceremony, there is a there are talks and our um, there's a great big crowd, not only the friends and family of those being naturalized, but also uh, lots of local citizens come. And each year we have a guest speaker, and this year it is Dave Matthews. Oh, really? <laughs> of the Dave Matthews Band. Wow. And yeah, he was so he's a naturalized citizen. And yeah. other speakers have been um, Colin Powell, um, President Bush, um, Madeline Albright, Alan yeah. Alda. It's been, it's great. Alan Alda, really? Yeah, wow. it's great. Boy, I had no idea. And, you know, when you said that, it I got to say, it gave me goosebumps. That's just amazing. Well, um, thanks for saying that. And not only would you have goosebumps upon seeing it, but really tears. I, I think that mm-hmm. every it's really a place to bring your handkerchief because it is so um, it's so moving. And after the ceremony ends, when all of the citizens have been naturalized, the um, the justice from the court asks if if the new citizens have comments. And everybody, often, many, many people have comments about their experiences in the places they were born and what it means to them to be Americans. Wow. Now, how does one find out about 
like someone is going to be naturalized, how do they? How would they find out that this is an option? Well, you have to be a um, look. You have to live in this uh, jurisdiction uh-huh. in order to be naturalized here. And mm-hmm. since it's a function of the federal court, it's the Fourth Circuit here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So you can request um, to be naturalized here. And typically, it's people really from just our local community, maybe and the surrounding area. Uh-huh. So I've been on your mailing list, actually, email list, I should say, Good. since since we talked a few years ago. Excellent. And I see all the different things you have. There's a lot of things going on here all the time. There are lots of things going on here, not only activities that engage the public with through things such as the Heritage Harvest Festival, and our um, special tours and um, activities, Saturdays in the garden, for example. Um, we've just begun a new revolutionary garden tour so that people with a really serious interest, or not so serious interest, but I would say mm-hmm. curiosity about gardening, can learn about what Jefferson did here that was special. Um, he did a lot that was pretty special. He did many, many things that were mm-hmm. very special. So I hope that, I know that this morning, I think you saw the film. Yes, I did. And yeah. took a general tour, but I hope That's that this right. afternoon you'll have a lot more time for exploration. I wish I could say I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that many people don't realize how many things there are to do at Monticello. And mm-hmm. instead of it being really... Um, a short visit just seeing the house, there are um, abundant opportunities for learning and enjoyment. We have a cafe here. There's a beautiful courtyard not just behind you, Martin, where there are people enjoying the weather and socializing out there. And there's also exhibitions and our film in our visitor center, special tours, um, behind-the-scenes tours, signature tours that offer people in-depth, ex- more in-depth experience of the house. And there's just a lot to see and do. Yeah. Ironically, uh, probably some of the listeners know this, but Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died only a few hours apart uh, on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, which That's, is pretty amazing. It is. It was considered a um, an amazing um, moment then as it is now that these two great founders died on the very same day. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson had been sick for several days, in and out of consciousness. And early in the morning on the 4th, um, his grandson-in-law indicated that this that it was the 4th. And at 10 minutes of 1 in the afternoon, exactly at the moment that Congress approved the declaration on July 4th, um, he passed away. You know, I, I didn't know that part of it. And guess what? I have goosebumps again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he hung on to that yeah. moment. There wasn't any question that he was holding on until July 4th. Yeah. And it was his will. Um, and then John Adams um, believed that on his last day that Jefferson was still alive, right. and the that was at his least, last words or something. Well, wasn't it? that's or what some people think. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of controversy about that. But yeah. I think I like the story that his yeah. last words were "Jefferson still, still lives, lives, still right. lives." Yeah, and, and of so, course he didn't know that Jefferson 
wasn't alive. That's right. They didn't exactly have internet or phones back Mm-mm. then. Yeah. Um, since you just mentioned the word controversy, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, because it always comes up when Thomas Jefferson and Monticello comes up, this is about Sally Hemming. Sure. The, the children. And I know that the, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation has conceded the fact that it's most likely that he was the father of the six children. Yeah, we have studied this question for a long time, Mm. and it's been a historical question ever since Jefferson's lifetime. And the position of the foundation is that of most historians, that the preponderance of evidence, um, scientific and historical evidence, suggests that Jefferson was indeed the father of Sally Hemings's children. And they were actually among the five freed upon his death? Well, um, two of them were freed in Jefferson's will, Madison Mm -hmm. and Eston Hemings, and they were to be freed when they were 21 years old. Mm. And then the two other living Hemings children were allowed to leave Monticello uh, several years before. So so Mm -hmm. all four of Sally Hemings' living children were um, allowed to leave or were freed by Jefferson. Now, a listener that I was communicating with knew that I was coming here, and she's just had one question. I think I know the answer to it, Mm -hmm. but I thought I'd ask you. And why, upon his death, didn't he free his slaves? And the reason I'm going to think it is, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that he realized he was in debt, was $107,000 or something like that, and that he realized that the slaves would be in part to pay off his debts. Is that Indeed. It? Um, uh, in Jefferson's time, slaves were property. Right, they were yeah. chattel. So mm-hmm. he, the value of his estate was determined by the value not only of the things that he owned and the land that he owned, but also people that he owned. And with so much debt, he, he really, um, I think, financially could not have um, freed his people and paid the debt. And after he passed away, six months later, on January 15th of 1827, there was a large sale at Monticello, which we call the dispersal sale, in which his furnishings and his property, including his slaves, were sold. So it was a day of enormous sadness at Monticello. Oh, I imagine. Um, when so many families were broken up. Um, Is it the it. Levy family that... What's the name it, of the family? Yes, the family that bought Monticello um, in 1834 and owned it essentially since night through... December of 1923, was the family of Uriah Phillips Levy. And he was um, the first Jewish commissioned naval officer in the U.S. Navy. And he believed that he owed a great debt to Jefferson for Jefferson's support of religious freedom and the separation Hmm. of church and state. So Levy bought Monticello, owned it until his death in 1862, and then the Confederate States um, acquired it, 
took possession of it along, as they did wow. of many properties mm -hmm. owned by Northerners in the South. And it was briefly owned by a family named Ficklin. And then in 1878, a nephew of Uriah's, a man named Jefferson Monroe Levy, mm -hmm. um, acquired the house by buying out the interests of his other family members. And it was Jefferson Monroe Levy who owned it until the Thomas Jefferson Foundation was formed in 1923 and acquired it from him. Now, I know briefly during the Revolution, it was occupied. Um, Very nothing, briefly. But during the Civil War, I just never thought of this. Was there ever any say, looting or anything? Not as far as I know, no. I think it that it respectful. was really, yes. Mm -hmm. And the house was not properly cared for during this period of time. Mm -hmm. And the and Jefferson Monroe Levy, in his will, left it to the U.S. government so that it could become a home for the orphan children of naval warrant officers. Wow. And the government turned that down his will was litigated for many years, and ultimately it was resolved, and Jefferson Monroe Levy acquired it. And that Levy was a two-term or three-term congressman from New York, and he did not live here full-time, but it was, it essentially was, Monticello was essentially preserved by the dedication and respect of the Levy family for over 90 years. Mm -hmm. The property is a very high-maintenance property. You know, I mean, if it wasn't for the slaves, it could have never been as prestigious and laid out as it was. But after the purchase in, was it 1827, did you say, the first time it went up for sale? Well, it went up, it wasn't actually sold until 1829 or 1830, oh, okay. and it was owned by someone else, James and, Barclay, for a few years, and then Barclay sold it to Uriah. Was there a slave population there at that time to maintain it? There were some enslaved people here, but I think that mm -hmm. the levies owned some slaves, but not nearly as many as were here in Jefferson's yep. in Jefferson's time. Now, I just heard, um, I'm kind of a numbers guy, so I, I believe it's about 11,000 square feet, the home. Approximately. And about 10 cords of wood a year to heat it, which is... I mean, that alone. A lot. I mean, right. people today think, okay, a quarter wood's a quarter wood. You order it and someone chainsaws it up. But we're talking back with his hand labor. Yes. A, a quarter wood was a lot of it's work. It's a lot of wood and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of labor. Yeah. And um, there was also a lot of wood prepared for the burning of charcoal here, which mm. was a, an important fuel that... Uh, made possible a lot of work and living along Mulberry Row, which was the plantation's main street. But the Monticello plantation then was about 5,000 acres divided into the home farm, Monticello, and the surrounding quarter farms. And it was a very um, rational, logical approach that Jefferson employed. And there were people living and working near Monticello, um, Mulberry Row, which I, I hope you'll have time to explore a little bit, had in its, in its day had as, had as many as 20 structures along it, wow. uh, many of them to support the construction of the house 
the joinery, a carpentry shop, blacksmith shop, and dwellings for hired white and enslaved workers. But the enslaved people and their families were also housed on the quarter farms, depending on what they did and where they worked. Wow, so many people. So there's, uh, and in any given year, about 130 people, but that varied greatly from year to year. And the figure we use is 130 to 140 people in any one year. Now, I know, you know, Thomas Jefferson, even when he was coming back from Paris, if I remember right, he was in debt then, and yet he sent all these things back, sold his books, which are now the basis of the Library of Congress. Am I right. right. You know, his books were his very treasured items. As a matter of fact, sometimes books were more than an acre of land. That, they were very expensive. Yeah, they are very, very expensive. And Jefferson had a very valuable library, not only financially valuable, but intellectually very valuable because it was, I believe, the largest private library in the U.S. Wow. At, at that time. And for sure had the most titles related to North America. Mm-hmm. So it was a library that reflected Jefferson's immense knowledge and curiosity wow. in, in every imaginable s- subject. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it was really in, in very, very important and an act of great generosity for him to offer to sell it to Congress. Mm-hmm. And you remember that the library of the Capitol was burned by the mm-hmm. British during the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. And that's what prompted the sale. Oh, really? And there were oh. congressmen then who objected to it, saying, why should we buy books in languages that people can't read? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Yeah, because I know he, he liked to read books in their original language. Yes. Yeah. Now, did he ever have a plan to try to... How did he... He could not stop living above his means? Is that... I think that that would not be a good... A way to characterize Jefferson at all. Because it's applying what I would describe as presentism. In Jefferson's time, Uh you know, the... It's knowledge of today driving the past. And in fact... It, it, it really was different then. First of all, there was no annual reckoning, no April 15th, mm-hmm. no income taxes. Mm-hmm. So there was no incentive, really, or no, uh, like, big, uh, you know, sort of big deadline like that for someone to ascertain his net, wor- his net worth or what his income was or anything like that. So that wasn't something that Jefferson would know, would have known. Oh, really? No, right. And because he had people who owed him money, uh-huh. he ho- owed money, and he was a very um, fastidious account keeper. But it all didn't, it, but it's absolutely true that for him, he didn't create a um, you know what I guess we'd call a balance sheet. That wasn't something that he did o- often. Uh-huh. Um, so it was easy not to know not to know these things. But I don't think that he knowingly lived beyond his means. You probably remember from your tour today that someone probably mentioned that he brought back eighty six crates of goods mm-hmm. from France, and that was 
essentially the contents of his house in Paris, and it included many crates of, of books and things like mattresses and chairs. And these were all things that were acquired for his diplomatic residence there. And he bought them believing that the U.S. government was going to reimburse him for oh. these things. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but the government declined. And so he then bought them himself. It would be today like expecting an ambassador to pay for the embassy and residence hims wow. himself. S and Jefferson wanted to see that the country was represented in a dignified way. Mm -hmm. And that's why he got all those things. And one of my particular interests is what Jefferson bought in Paris. And he, you know, if we look at any French furniture today, we think, oh, my gosh, that's extravagant. But he was buying the most modest French furniture. Yeah, it mm -hmm. was not really, um, I would say... Um, furniture historians in Paris wouldn't blink at mm -hmm. the things that Jefferson acquired, except that they're interesting because Jefferson acquired them. As an appraiser, I totally agree with what I saw. Oh, right. I didn't get to see Good. everything. I, I also heard today, which I thought was pretty interesting, the mirrors that were said to be French and possibly right, brought right, back right, right. were actually made in Philadelphia. Could be right, and oh, it's they, not yeah. Well, there. well, that's what we suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were probably per. You know, we our best um, reading on them is that we think they were sold in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. but where they were made is another question. They could have been carved in England, uh -huh. not in France. But whatever it is, they're not French. They're not French. Yeah, they don't really have the uh, no, French look to them. They don't. The, one of the things I really wanted to see was the clock with the cannonball clock. I oh, good! Seeing that. And so you saw, and you yeah. saw it on a good day too. Yeah. Because the cannonball-like weights are high on the wall. That's right. On Mondays. Yeah. And then the thing that I have never heard before was, you know, the weather vane in the top, and then you look up uh, in the portico or whatever mm -hmm. you call it. That's right. And um, you see the little directional right there, the little compass. It's rose there. And, Right. And the direction the wind's blowing. How wonderful is that? That's really it's great. A, it's great. And I think what it demonstrates is that Jefferson was interested in technology mm -hmm. and in observation and recording data. And this was a way of his knowing more about the conditions at Monticello, making note of them, and then sharing that. And that is really um, emblematic of Jefferson's whole life and his approach, his approach to life, to being someone who's scientific, rational, mm -hmm. um, wanting to expand knowledge in many different ways. So he was someone who was a lifelong observer and sharer of ideas and information. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the gardening, I, I walked through the actual the vegetable mm -hmm. garden. Great. It's beautiful. And that little brick building down there, I always wanted mm -hmm. to see that. Um, I heard someone say that they're possibly selling generational seeds of Jefferson's? Oh, great question, yes. Um, we have something called the Historic Plant Center, and we um, are growing and propagating the varieties wherever possible that Jefferson owned, and we harvest those vegetables and when it's quiet here in the winter, 
we uh, save those seeds and pack them and then sell them mm -hmm. in our museum shop. So before you go, I'll give you, uh, we'll choose some for Ooh, you. Okay. Great. They're not genetically modified either. No, not at <laughs> no all. No GMO here. No GM. no, not at all. Yeah, uh, the gardening was his favorite thing. Is that was wasn't it? I know science was up there. But well, gardening was right there. I think that he he said that he was um, an old man but a young gardener. Yeah. But but Jefferson also said that music was the favorite passion of his soul, and then he said that he was an enthusiast on the subject of the arts. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that we can really say that. Jefferson had a single favorite, but we know that he enjoyed things that, you know, the things that enriched his life were gardening, surveying, learning, music, mm -hmm. visual arts. And of course, he, he made lasting contributions to our visual culture through his architecture. Yes, absolutely beautiful. I love, love the design and, and the skylights. I can't believe the skylights were made back you know, in America at that time. And his privy has a skylight, too. <laughs> I think yeah. That's a, a, I mean, the indoor oh, privies yes. were so so far, few and far between. Um, well, um, Jefferson, I think, liked to deploy technology because he was really interested in ways in which um, practical things could improve the lives of ordinary people. Mm -hmm. So light would have been one of those yes. things, bringing light. Light, light, and um, but privy-wise, that's a really interesting topic, because one visitor to Monticello said that the privies here were located much more conveniently, but they weren't the latest things. These were, you know, there were water closets being advertised in London townhouses in 1796. Really? Yeah, wow. and Jefferson didn't have them, but he had. You know, spaces for privies in his house. Now, where did he get, since it was a mountaintop, where did he get his water? Oh, Martin, you're asking all the good, <laughs> tough questions. Um, water was difficult on to yeah. obtain on the mountaintop. And there was a well up on the mountaintop, and that dried up. So after that well dried up, there was water was carted up the mountain. Imagine oh how arduous that was wow. from springs, from natural springs. And some of those springs are still functioning really well today. Mm -hmm. But just imagine what hard work that must have been. Um, and with, with so many involved. people up there needing right. needing water, having yeah. to like bring that up here was a, was a big thing. And um, Jefferson designed zigzag roofs under the terraces that you walked on those two big l-shaped terraces there are zigzag sort of it looks like corrug corrugation mm -hmm. and gutters so like cisterns the, yes and what happened is that the gutters fed into cisterns mm -hmm. And there was there was correspondence about how those cisterns leaked from time to time, and they were trying to come up with something that was leak free. But getting water up here was uh, was always difficult, and it was something that Jefferson was thinking about: is how to get that water, how to hold on to it. There are two cisterns here on 
at one on the south and one on the north, and they're fed. You know, the gutters from the north terrace um, feed right in, feed into them. But I imagine, and there were pumps in those uh-huh. cisterns too. Now he moved up here. I think he was like twenty six years old or something like that. He was young, right? When, and uh, I wonder how how he dealt with water. I don't want to make this whole thing be about water, but you know, when he was up there alone or. Well, I think that he was never really up here alone, that there were enslaved people, not as many as who were living here later, but there was always a small, there was always a population. And, but putting your house on a mountaintop was not a practical decision. Mm -hmm. And it was one that he, in in effect, paid for over and over again Mm -hmm. with the, um, with the, Water was remained an issue, both for drinking and y- use of water on the mountaintop, but it was also the location on the mountaintop was also impractical because it was remote from a navigable river, and so everything that came to Monticello that wasn't made at Monticello came here by boat to the James River, wow. to its tributary, the Rivanna. And that's the closest small river. And and most things, because the Rivanna wasn't navigable as far as Monticello, most things were dropped either at Milton or a little farther up and carted here. So everything had to go by boat and or bateau and then and then by cart. So it was it, it wasn't easy. His his best friend through childhood, Dabney Carr. They mm-hmm. made that pledge that mm-hmm. if one of them died, the other one would bury him on the mountain. Where is he located? Oh well, there's a cemetery on the mountaintop that is still owned um, by descendants of Jefferson's two daughters, Martha really? and Maria, uh-huh. and and family members are buried in that cemetery there were funer- two funerals here last month for example so it's still an active so cemetery. it's still an active cemetery wow. and, and that's where dabney is and that's where dabney car is mm-hmm. and jefferson's grave is there as well as well as his wife and um, his grave is marked by an obelisk that he designed and yes. he wrote his own epitaph uh-huh yeah. Now, the little note that was written between his wife and himself from Tristan Shandy. I yes. It does, is that here? No, that is not. We don't own that note, and yeah. I'm I th- uh, I'm I don't remember which manuscript collection has it. But if you explore our exhibition called "To Try All Things," you will see a copy of that note. Yeah, that's very moving. So the last question I have for you, if Thomas Jefferson knocked on the door right now and walked in and said hello. What would you say to him? Well, I uh, that's a difficult question for me to answer because there are perhaps a dozen questions of sort of intellectual questions that I would want to know. I'd want to know um, more about his disappointments in a mm. way. What things would he, I'd like to know what he would have liked to have see, seen achieved that he wasn't able to realize or that wasn't achievable in his own time. 
but I have a much more practical question, and that is I'd like him to walk me around the house <laughs> and tell me where we've got it right and where we've got it wrong. Oh, wow, like, are the yeah. is the furniture where you had it? Is this as you left it? I think that's perfect. And, <laughs> and, and we have, we're, we're very fortunate here to have abundant documentary records and manuscript materials, letters and things that describe Monticello, but no photographs yeah. and nothing, no drawings no really. Mm. There, there is really one sketch of, uh, of a plan of the house with particular things noted on it, but it isn't complete. So you'd like to see and know a lot more than you do. Yeah. Um, well, that is it for time, and you've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Come back to Monticello soon and often. I want to live here. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.